listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 26 verses 36 to 46. Let's hear God's word. Then Jesus went with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Amen. This is God's word. Here at Trinity, we're, we're taking a short break from our autumn sermon series, which is on the Ten Commandments, and we'll pick that up again in November. Uh, and so today, as we're about to come to the Lord's table, we're going to focus on an event that took place in the lead-up to Christ's death. At Christ's death, his crucifixion, is right at the centre of the Christian faith. This meal, the Lord's Supper, emphasises that, doesn't it? It Uh, The Lord Jesus, shortly before his death, he instituted this meal as a meal to be observed in the church throughout the ages until he returns. And it's a meal that quite clearly is all about remembering his death, his broken body, his shed blood, symbolised in the bread and the wine. Uh, And there is nothing else that is quite in the same category as the Lord's Supper in the life of the church, in the life of the Christian. Uh, We have not been instructed, as we have been instructed to observe the Lord's Supper, to celebrate certain feast days or or festivals, for instance. And even baptism is not quite in the same category as the Lord's Supper, because as Christians we're not to be re-baptised and and re-baptised over and over again throughout our lives. Baptism is a one-time event, but this event, celebrating the Lord's Supper, is something that we're instructed to do regularly. And so Jesus, 
in instituting this meal to be regularly observed by his people, he is making clear that at the centre of our faith is his death. Because this meal is all about his death. In fact, you can't get very far in reading any part of the New Testament before you find yourself reading about the death of Jesus Christ and its significance. All four Gospels in the New Testament, the books written as introductions to who Jesus is and what he has done, all of the major on Jesus' death, his crucifixion, the events that surround it. And it's interesting that when each of the four Gospels, they, they transition in their Gospel from, from writing about all that took place in Jesus' life to then writing about all that takes place surrounding his death. In each of the four Gospels, that transition begins in a place called Gethsemane. In a garden where Jesus would often go to pray. Each gospel focuses on this one particular night when Jesus went with his disciples to pray in Gethsemane. Which is to say, isn't it, that there is something clearly significant about that night in Gethsemane. In fact, Christians throughout history have recognised this. They've recognised that the gospel writers attach a certain significance to that night in Gethsemane. Uh, churches in, in our denomination, in the International Presbyterian Church, they've, since the beginning of the denomination, adopted a, a piece of what was originally French Reformed liturgy that is used uh, when the child in a Christian family is baptised. Uh, it was read out, in fact, at the baptism of both of our children, after the water is sprinkled on the baby's head, the minister addresses the child with these words. He says, For you, little child, Jesus Christ has come. He has fought. He has suffered. For you, he entered the shadow of Gethsemane and the horror of Calvary. For you, he uttered the cry, it is finished. For you, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and there he intercedes. See, for you... He entered the shadow of Gethsemane. Now, I know that many of us here today are perhaps more familiar with, with churches where babies born in Christian families are not usually baptised, so maybe you're not too sure what to do with that. Um, that's okay. But, but think of the words of that old hymn, which we're actually going to sing later on in the service, I Stand Amazed in the Presence. Think of that verse. It goes, For me it was in the garden... He prayed not his will but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. For me, it was in the garden. Gethsemane. All of which is to say that on this particular night in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus Christ did something. And he did it for you, for me. Which does, doesn't it, beg the question, what was it that Jesus did that night? What was so significant about this night in Gethsemane? Well, I want us to focus on just one thing in this passage that we read from Matthew 26. Christ's cup. Thinking about Christ's cup today. At the heart of all that took place on that night at Gethsemane is the prospect Christ faces of what he refers to as drinking this cup. At the beginning of the passage, he asks his disciples to remain in one part of the garden while he goes on to pray. And he asked Peter, James and John in particular to watch and pray with him. 
But he himself, he goes elsewhere in the garden to pray alone. And he prays in verse 39, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And in verse 42, Jesus prays for a second time and says, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Matthew tells us then in verse 44 that Jesus later goes and he prays for a third time, saying the same words. Three times Jesus prays in relation to this so-called cup that he knows he is about to drink. So what is Jesus referring to when he refers to this cup? Well, we're given a clue by the fact that the prospect of drinking this cup is clearly a daunting prospect to Jesus. He is wrestling with He's almost recoiling at the thought of it. He is conscious of his need to be praying to his father for the strength he needs to take it and drink it. What is on the horizon for Jesus here is filling him with with such a crippling sense of dread. What is it? It's his death. This is the the point of transition in each of the Gospels between Jesus' life and his death. And he himself is aware of this transition taking place in, in real time in his life. From a very young age, he was aware of the, of the fate that awaited him. But now the time has come. And the prospect of this death was a daunting prospect to him. Now... You and I know something of what it is to fear death, don't we? Uh, Perhaps you think about it a lot. Perhaps you've been forced to think about it a lot through your work or through your own circumstances. Perhaps you haven't thought about it enough. Uh, But either way, the prospect of dying is a prospect that we naturally find to be a frightening thing, no matter how much we might try and ignore it or claim otherwise. But this fear that Christ experienced that night in Gethsemane was something different because this particular death was going to be a different type of death what jesus saw coming on the horizon it was no mere death the kind that we see coming on our horizon that's made clear by the way that jesus chooses to refer to his death he refers to it as this cup that he is to drink we, we will often use different images, won't we, to refer to our death. When our time comes, we might say, our time. That when the lights go out, something like that. But when Jesus uses this image, the, the image of a cup being drunk, he's using it in a way that it's, it's used in the Old Testament. The scriptures that Jesus was so familiar with. And so if we're going to understand what is in store for Jesus in his death, then we need to understand how this image of a cup being drunk is used in the Old Testament. We could look at at several passages, but just take the way that this image is used in the Psalms, for instance, in two Psalms. Psalm 11, Psalm 11 verses 5 and 6 says this, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. 
speaks of God's hatred of the wicked, of the person who opposes God and his people and who loves to do harm to others. The wicked, the psalm says, have a cup that they will one day drink. And the psalm tells us that it's a cup filled with a cocktail of fire and sulfur and scorching wind. Here's Psalm 75. Psalm 75 verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Here the psalm speaks of a cup that the Lord holds in his hand, and in it is wine that is foaming, which is not a good thing. And the Lord will pour out this cup and it'll be drank by the wicked, by all those who don't worship God. What is it that the Psalms are representing by this image? This image of a cup to be drunk? They're picturing what is referred to in the Bible as God's wrath. What Psalm 11 describes as his active hatred of evil. His active opposing it and addressing it and punishing it. And this wrath, we're told, will be poured out by God and drunk by the wicked. And there should be no doubt in our minds that to drink something described as a cocktail of fire and sulfur and scorching wind or as foaming wine is anything but a terrifying prospect. Again, when we're we're thinking clearly, we're able to recognise what a terrifying prospect facing God's wrath is. Just imagine standing before God. God, in all of his intense perfection and holiness, in all of his pure love for all that is good and his pure hatred for all that is evil, Imagine standing before the God who is determined to never let evil go unpunished, to never lower his standards of what is right and what is wrong. And imagine standing before him totally on your own. There's nobody to save you. And everything you've ever done, said, thought, desired that is contrary to God's perfect law is all there laid bare. Your wickedness, your sinfulness. Although you, you might have been able to do a good job of hiding it from others, maybe even hiding it from yourself, it's there totally exposed and you're totally on your own in front of this God who with intense purity hates all that is evil and will not let it go unpunished. We should understand, shouldn't we, that as sinful people, that is a terrifying prospect. And yet for Jesus, on that night in Gethsemane, it was a prospect filled with terror on a whole different level. It was a terrifying prospect for him... Not because he was heading to his death as a sinner about to be exposed, because he wasn't. He is the one person who has ever lived who has never sinned. He, in himself, he had absolutely no reason to fear 
ever experiencing the wrath of God. There was nothing wicked in him that was deserving of punishment. We actually see Jesus' perfect life highlighted here in this passage in two ways. We see that, first of all, that he's the, the only one who prays as he ought to. He's the only one who recognises how, as a human being, he is completely dependent on God for the strength that he needs. And he acts accordingly. He calls on God in prayer. The second way we see it is is complete submission to his Father's will, his complete obedience. It's an example of Jesus' perfect obedience, which is in contrast to his followers who even though Jesus had pressed on them their weakness and their need of God more than anything else, they did not watch and pray with him, but they closed their eyes and they slept. So Jesus here in this passage, he's in a category entirely of his own, the only sinless human being ever to have lived. And so it begs the question, doesn't it? If Jesus was sinless, without sin, if there was not even a hint of wickedness in him, deserving of God's just punishment, then why was the prospect of his death one that terrified him? It was not because he went to his death as a sinner. But it was because he went to his death as a sin bearer. He went to his death bearing the sins of his people. He went to his death with every one of our evil deeds, thoughts, words, desires, all of them laid on him. The cup which he was about to drink didn't, didn't just contain a measure of God's wrath reserved for the sins of just one person. But it contained the, the just measure of God's wrath which the sins of all God's people have earned. This is why the Apostle Paul puts it so strongly in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. He says, for our sake God made him who knew no sin to be sin." Jesus is, you almost, you, almost don't want to, you almost don't want to say it, but the Apostle Paul goes this far. Jesus is, in a sense, sin personified as the sin bearer. And Jesus sees the cup of wrath in the Lord's hand waiting for him. And he is filled with terror. Why was it at this particular point that Jesus is filled with such dread? Because he knew, it's clear, he knew from a young age that this was his calling. So why now does he experience such agony over it? It's because at this point in Gethsemane, there's, there's a finality here to Jesus accepting his calling as our sin bearer. Um, <clears throat> last week, we, uh, we were on holiday. We, we took our children to Disneyland in Paris. And uh, me and my sisters had some time with, um, uh, with one another when the children were sleeping um, to relive our experience of Disneyland in, in Paris uh, from when we went to, to visit it as children ourselves. And we went and revisited some of the roller coasters that we'd been on. Uh, when we were children. And um, when you're queuing, you, you know the experience, don't you? When you're queuing for a roller coaster, there's all this anticipation of what is to come. Uh, one, of the, one of the parts of the experience is the build-up of the anticipation. 
of getting there, getting to the front of the queue, sitting in the roller coaster. And I, and I think, I'm pretty sure, uh, on some of the rides, that the people who've designed uh, the rides, they, they've purposefully done things to, to try and build up this, this sense of fear, this sense of anticipation as you're waiting. And so you, we, we were queuing for one roller coaster in the dark, and, uh, and there's posters on the wall warning you of all the risks of the roller coaster. And there's kind of mock videos of people like parodying uh, these warnings. And all of it is making you, you can see people in front of you in the queue, not me of course, um, filling with, with, with dread. And then you get to the front of the queue and, and maybe you're a little bit more nervous. Uh, but when you take your seat on the ride and you pull down the harness, your heart beats a little bit faster because now at that point you're accepting your fate. The ride starts, the carriage moves forward on the tracks and there's no turning back. It's a little bit like that for Christ in Gethsemane. He's always known the cross was coming, just like the person at the back of the queue for the roller coaster knows what's at the end of the wait. But in Gethsemane, as he faces the prospect of the cup he is about to drink up close, as it were, there's a finality to him accepting it. And we see that because from this point on, everything changes in, in Jesus' experience. Uh, one Scottish Christian minister named Hugh Martin, he wrote in the 1800s a, a book on the events leading up to Christ's death. And he made this observation. Um, he made the observation that after Gethsemane, from that point until his resurrection, Christ is only treated as a criminal. He's no longer treated as a free man from this point. He wrote this. From this moment onward to his resurrection, Jesus is seen among men no more in any other character than that of a criminal. Every step now in his history is that of the history of a criminal. The whole may be summed up briefly thus. He is arrested, libeled, judged, condemned, executed. This whole series of his successive positions and endurances, the things he endured, he did so as an offender. As a transgressor, a criminal. See, in Gethsemane, Christ takes his seat and he's strapped in and the wheels are now in motion and he heads to his death, willing to drink the cup that awaits him. He knows the horror of it, but he doesn't turn back. What is all this have to do with you? Summed up in those words that we heard at the beginning. For you, Christ entered the shadow of Gethsemane. For me, it was in the garden. Christ saw the horror of what awaited him in his death and he did not turn back from it. But instead, that night at Gethsemane, he formally and finally accepted that he would drink the cup of God's wrath that was reserved for you, for me. The terror that he felt that night belonged to us. The horror of that cup was ours. 
But he faced it. He drank it, every last drop of it, for you. That night, when he prayed, he prayed for your sake. When he went forward to his arrest, to his unjust trial and his mistreatment as a criminal, he went in your name, carrying your sin. When he accepted his sentence, when he went to his execution, he did so, as it were, clothed in your sins. And the measure of God's wrath that was justly reserved for you was poured into his cup and he drank it. He absorbed it. Every last drop. He became the wicked who drank the cup to the dregs on your behalf. Friends, we'll never know the terror that Christ experienced that night in Gethsemane. And because he looked it in the eye and he didn't turn back, there is now nothing to fear for all who trust in him as their sin bearer. Although we're naturally and rightly filled with dread at the thought of standing before God alone, that is simply a day that will never come. Because we have and always will have a sin bearer who has stood before God in our place and who has taken the punishment we deserve. For you, Christ entered the shadow of Gethsemane. For me, it was in the garden. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we marvel at your wisdom and your kindness and your grace that would determine that our sins and the punishment they deserve would be borne by your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he drank the cup that belonged to us. And so we pray now that you would help us to live rightly in light of that, that we would not be filled with terror at what awaits us, but that we would be filled with praise and joy at all that Christ has done for us. So as we come now around his table, we ask that you would further confirm these things to us and press them upon our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the connect page on our website trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.